So no matter how big we are, we're never big enough. We, we cannot, for example, know the future. None of us know the future. We also cannot escape death. None of us have the ability to do that on our own. There's a limit, obviously, to who we are. There's a limit to our abilities. And it is, in fact, perhaps a mark of wisdom, perhaps even the core of wisdom, to acknowledge our own limitations and our own inabilities. Proverbs says it like this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, among other things, is the acknowledgement that I am not God and that my life coheres and exists in the context of another one from whom I derive my being, on whom I depend, and to whom I am accountable with my life. So there's an acknowledgement in that statement of our own limitations. So, though acknowledging our limitations in the context of God is indeed a mark of wisdom, it is much too commonplace in our world today to fail to acknowledge our limitations. We tend to underestimate our own limitations. And we're encouraged in that. There's a silly illustration of this. Back when I was in the sixth grade, when you know no mountain was too tall, um, my buddies and I would go to that hill in the back of my house, which was filled with scrub oak and big boulders and rocks. This is in Colorado Springs. We'd put on long pants and long sleeves on a summer day, and we'd, we'd start off up the mountain. This was just a bit of a hill. And... Uh, the, the objective was to go straight up and never deviate to the right or to the left, no matter what it was that came in our path. And we would chant this sixth grade chant, nothing can get in our way, hey, hey, nothing can get in our way, ho, ho. And off we went up the hill. No challenge too big for a sixth grade boy. But many of us live our lives in this way. We're told to believe in ourselves, to be the hero, to be the superstar, to dream big, and so we do. But the question is, where does this all lead in our lives? King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was one such person who had risen to the top. He was the new king of the world empire of his day. Yet we read in the opening verse of chapter 2 of Daniel, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams... His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. He'd had some dreams, and his spirit was troubled, so he couldn't sleep. He wasn't enjoying the fruit of his labor, the being at the top of the ladder. He was disturbed and not able to rest. You know, surprisingly, it's often the case that those who are in positions of power and authority are, and those whom the world is, who, who, have, who have accomplished more of what the world says is important than perhaps many of us, are often those who are most riddled with fear and insecurity in their lives. Two reasons could be given for this. First, it's that those with a super drive and ambition are often uh, doing, uh, often the source of that drive in and of itself is from fear and insecurity. Reinhold Niebuhr argued that most political tyranny was rooted in fear saying that the lust for power is born in the darkly conscious realization of the basic insecurity of human existence. Even if our conscious thoughts deny our limitations, as may have been the case with Nebuchadnezzar, those thoughts seep into his subconsciousness and manifest themselves in his dreams. Second, it might be true that that success, it is true that success in worldly terms 
actually breeds fear and insecurity. Think of all those who are wealthy, extremely wealthy, who would say, you know, I, I thought this was going to be great, but actually it's just brought all kinds of trouble and turmoil and, and anxiety in my life because I have to manage this and I'm afraid I might lose it all and so on and so forth. And so Nebuchadnezzar may have very well been afraid that he couldn't hold on to his newly established position as king of Babylon. And he knows at some deep level that he's not invincible. And it may be that this is the source, the natural source. Obviously, there's a divine source to his dreams. But the natural source of his dreams coming out of this place of power and prominence. One of the things I'd put to you that all this means is that uh, whatever our success and accomplishments, our lives cannot be grounded in those things. Life built on us and life built on our successes is inherently insecure and unstable because we are quite limited and fragile. As human creatures. Even though we often try. We'll never be certain. And never be sure of things on our own. Because deep down. We know that we cannot be a sufficient grounding. For meaning and security in our own lives. We know that we can't be. Even though we tell ourselves otherwise often. So if we're living like this. Like Nebuchadnezzar most likely was. Then when fear and insecurity do rattle us. We tend to take matters into our own hands. As Nebuchadnezzar does in chapter 2. When the going gets tough. The tough get going. We're not sure if Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream or if he simply wanted to ensure that the interpretation his magicians tell him is actually genuine and from some source other than their own creative minds. But he demands that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans come and tell him both his dream and its interpretation. In other words, he's saying, I will not be left in the darkness. And I don't want just some kind of made-up answer. But I want to know what I dreamed and I want to know what it meant. And so by their ingenuity and their craft, they must come through. We often deal with our own insecurity and fear in the same way. We gather the resources that we have around us and we we run right through it and say, we're going to fix this, you know? We're going to just make this work. But there's a huge problem in this case with Nebuchadnezzar. There's a problem in, in this case with a lot of us as we start to walk down this path. And the magicians in verses 10 and 11 articulate this problem very clearly and very, very well. And here's what they say. After Nebuchadnezzar says, look, if you can't tell me the dream and interpretation, I'm going to kill you and cut you up in pieces. Stakes are not exactly small for them. They say, look, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. What Nebuchadnezzar wants, only the gods can reveal, they say. But then they say, but they are distant. They're far away. Their dwelling is not with flesh. And there's no way we can ever hope to find this answer that you're asking for out. And this then becomes the breaking point for Nebuchadnezzar. He gets angry and very furious in verse 12. And then he issues the decree that all the wise men in Babylon need to be killed. So why? Why does this answer of the wise men, which is actually somewhat wise, why does that cause him to become infuriated so significantly? It's because Nebuchadnezzar ultimately wants to be his own god. He wants to be the one to assure his own life and his own power, his own stability. And that's essentially what life 
without acknowledging our limitations actually is. It's trying to be our own Lord, our own master, our own savior. To find security and peace and blessing on our own two feet. So when someone or anyone or a situation or anything reminds us that we can't do that. And those reminders inevitably come in our lives. Rather frequently. Rather than acknowledging our own limitations, as Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do here, we get angry and furious and rash in some way. And so at this point in the narrative, there's all kinds of desperation running around. It's a picture for us of life outside of God, of life as our own God. The things that we want and that we need most in our human lives, rescue from death, security about the future, Genuine forgiveness for the the things that we have done wrong, for the targets that we've missed in our lives, that we all know that we have, that we feel deeply. Ultimate meaning that goes beyond the 70 or 80 years that we might have on this earth. These things in and of themselves, we're powerless to to produce them, to get them in our lives. And if we stand only on our own two feet or if we we believe only in ourselves, then whether we have great success in the world or on the other hand, much failure in the world, our lives will be spent rattled with insecurity and anxiety and ultimately some kind of rage or despair, even if that remains relatively dormant under the surface, only only to raise its ugly head at various moments in our lives. This is the picture of Nebuchadnezzar and his magicians outside of life with God. Then we get the alternative in Daniel 2. Presented in Daniel and his friends. Who like the magicians and the the sorcerers of of the court of, of the king are also in a desperate situation which no human resources will rescue them from. There's no way out of this. But what's so interesting is that this context, and we really don't want to miss this, this context that the wise men, that Daniel and his friends are in, is the context for biblical faith. We've come to the end of our rope. There's nowhere else to turn. Our only hope, as the Babylonian wise men have rightly said, is with the gods. But where the Babylonians went wrong is by saying that God's dwelling is not with flesh. And the contrast begins to develop here. Quite to the contrary, the Bible consistently portrays, in this story particularly portrays, that God is not far from us, but rather dwells among us. Think back, just quickly, with the three men who visit Abram and Sarai in Genesis chapter 18. Coming among his people. Telling Sarai that in her old age that she will have a son. Or God in the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night coming alongside the Israelites as they seek to escape the Egyptian army and are almost overtaken by it. Or when the Syrian army in 2 Kings 6 surrounds Elisha and his servant comes to him deeply disturbed. Elisha, the Syrians have gathered around and we don't have anyone with us. And he says, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. And when the servant opens his eyes, he sees the chariots of fire and the soldiers gathered around the army of the Lord there with him and Elisha. God, the great, the high, the exalted one, with us, with his people. My family is often taken to memorizing some scripture together. We've done Psalm 23, one of the first things that we did. And Psalm 23 says, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then I'll stop and I'll say, why? And the kids will shout out the next line, for you are with me. 
such a consistent theme in the biblical narrative. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. Do not be riddled with insecurity. Do not be afraid. God is with you. And Daniel and his friends know this reality. And because of their faith in the God who is near, they, Daniel, asks for an appointment with the king even before he's got a clue of what the king's dream is or the interpretation. And demonstrates a real confidence and faith. And then he goes to his friends and he says to his friends, seek mercy from the God of heaven. Go and plead with the God of heaven. Confidence in the God, a mark in the God who is with us, a mark of biblical faith begins to take place in this story. There is a knowledge for Daniel and his friends of where to turn. We don't have the answers. We can't get out of this mess ourselves. But is anything too hard for the Lord? As those three men said to Abram back in Genesis 18. Or as Moses says to the Israelites in Exodus 14, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. So Daniel and his friends seek mercy and they pray. As Jesus would later say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So they ask. And it's important that they did this to note that they did this together. In community. As friends. Storming the gates of heaven. Beseeching their God for help in a hopeless situation. Men of faith. And then God reveals the interpretation of the dream to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now, before you start saying, okay, this is great, it worked for Daniel and his friends, but, you know, look, when I ask for a revelation of the future, God's not so forthcoming in my life. I want you to see that what God does with Daniel and his friends is actually paradigmatic of what God does with you and with me. This is really important. I want to make this point from verses 20 through 23 where Daniel erupts in praise to God after he gives him the revelation of the future. He opens this praise by saying this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. And then he closes this praise By saying this, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. Bless the God of wisdom and might. I praise you, for you have given me wisdom and might. Did you catch that? What God has done with Daniel is to share himself, his attributes, his nature, with Daniel, and in so doing, take Daniel beyond his natural limitations. God is a God of wisdom and might, and he has given to Daniel wisdom and might, and has let Daniel partake of himself. For those who depend upon the Lord, for those who turn to him in humble faith and seek mercy, this is the way that God works. God gives us himself. He gives us love and forgiveness and compassion. And ultimately, as we celebrated a couple weeks ago on Pentecost, he gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And as 2 Peter 1 says, then that we are partakers of the divine nature. Faith turns 
to the living God who is near, who is with us, who then gives us himself. And in so doing, by trusting in and depending upon the Lord, Daniel and we share in the attributes and the nature of the God of the universe who made us, who knows us, and who loves us. That then allows us to move beyond our natural limitations at life, holding grudges, unforgiveness, genuinely even kinds of knowledge and understanding, to share in the attributes and the nature of the God who is beyond all understanding, who knows no limits in his power and his authority. And he does this, why? He gives this to his children of faith, why? For his own glory. And that's seen so poignantly and powerfully here in chapter 2, that those who believe in and depend upon God do so and share in him for his glory. So that when Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, all right, Daniel, are you the one who has the power to interpret me, for me this dream? Daniel answers in verse 27 and says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And then later in verse 30, he says similarly, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me, has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. In other words, there is nothing special and great about me, King Nebuchadnezzar. This was Daniel's moment to give glory to the God who gave him the abilities that he could not have had apart from seeking him and falling down before him in faith. God bestows upon you, his children, gifts and his nature and abilities that you could not have in and of yourselves not to make you great but to make his name great in a world that longs that needs to see him and to know him those like Nebuchadnezzar who build their lives upon themselves are always seeking their own glory in fact the servant that Daniel goes to comes into Nebuchadnezzar and says I have found among the exiles one who can tell you and takes credit for this But those who humble themselves before the living God find that he gives them these gifts not for their own exaltation, but for God's glory and exaltation in a world that needs to see this. And this life of faith then brings, as we see throughout this narrative, a peace and a confidence and an assurance by acknowledging our limitations, by falling on our face before the Lord that no amount of worldly success ever can. The contrast is deeply apparent. So lastly, I want to ask this question. How do we move from one place to the other? How do we get out of the insecure and erratic life of the king in this story? From trying to be our own God to secure our own immortality in many ways to the wise and bold life of faith that Daniel exhibits. Of course, the answer is quite simple and maybe straightforward. Yes, we need to have faith and to trust in this God and to believe in him. But there's more in this text that helps us take some steps in that direction. The key to making this transition, I want to submit to you, is revealed in the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's a dream about a statue of a gold head, a silver chest and arms, bronze middle and thighs, iron legs and feet of iron and clay. In other words, this gigantic statue 
of impressive and costly metals, strong, expensive, representing the kingdoms of this world. And this impressive statue is then pulverized by a stone cut out by no human hand, which became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The only part of the statue that's identified in Daniel is the head of gold, which Daniel says is Nebuchadnezzar. There's a lot of scholarly debate about what the other kingdoms in the statue are and who they represent. But we won't go down that road right now. The stone, though, represents the kingdom of God. That in verse 44, we're told, we're told is a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. At its core, and here's what's important, the dream reveals two very important things which are essential to us making this transition from a life of trusting in ourselves and not acknowledging our limitations and being all that we can be to a life of humble faith that seeks a God who can do what we cannot. And the first is that even in the midst of apparent defeat, God rules over all. Verse 37 Daniel clearly says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you may be reigning over the known world, but it's God who's delegated this reign to you. And this is how he says it, with a shrewd tone of flattery to the king. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. That sounds like the Lord's prayer. Into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. To whom God has given... So even though his temple has been ransacked and you've exiled his people, one of whom I am, to a foreign land and put us in service to your kingship, this God is not defeated, but he's very much in command. This is Daniel's perspective of faith. God above all, God over all, always, and not just when things seem to be going right in his life or in our lives, but God who's reigning above all things. And seeing this, as the dream reveals, is one key for us to transitioning from instability and insecurity to the confidence and stability and stableness and rootedness of faith. But the dream goes beyond this, not just to affirming that God is ruling over the kings of this world and the nations of history, but that God will, in fact, establish his kingdom forever and ever. The day is coming when this rule will be established unambiguously, and all other kingdoms will be undone, defeated, and wiped out. This stone cut out by no human hand that breaks the statue, that the wind drives, blows away like chaff, and then grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Jesus himself references the stone of verse 34 in a self-referential way in Luke 20. Everyone who falls in that stone, Jesus says, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom picture of Daniel 2. And he proclaims that in the Gospels in his life. And this promised kingdom will last forever. How was this kingdom established? And what does this have to do with us moving from one sphere down the road to another of faith. It's by God doing in the person of Jesus exactly what the Babylonian magicians said that the gods did not do. Dwelling with flesh. Coming among us. 
John 1.14, he dwelt among us. And he came among us to do for us the very things that you and I could not do on our own. Like the Israelites at the edge of the Red Sea with, the, with Pharaoh's army encroaching upon them, we too were in a situation of no hope and no exit. But Jesus enters in. God enters in. God becomes nearer to us than ever he had been before and defeats our enemies of sin and death and the devil and and offers us and establishes a means of forgiveness through the worthy sacrifice of his son for our wrongdoing and raises us to new life in Jesus and fills us with his spirit, with God himself. So that not that we might be promoted to the head of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom as Daniel and his friends were, but so that we might be lifted up to the right hand of the Father, seated with Christ in heavenly places. And all of this, God does for his glory, for his name, because of his great love for us. And that great enemy, the final one to be defeated, death, that which makes a mockery of us all, that which communicates our limitations more than anything else in this world communicates to us our limitations is undone and overcome. The dream of God reigning, of God coming in a kingdom, and its fulfillment in Jesus, becomes the key that enables us to transition out of an anxiety-ridden life like Nebuchadnezzar had, of trying to be our own gods and grounding our lives in our own accomplishments into a life of boldness, of confidence, and faith, not in ourselves, but in a God who has come and drawn near us, in a God who is above all, but more than that, in a God who has become servant of all, in order that he might lift us up. So then we can face our limitations and still be confident in this God and his future and his purposes, knowing that the world's future and goodness is not relying, and my own personal future and blessing is not relying upon my own abilities, limited as they are, but upon the word of a God who's faithful to his promises. And we can face our limitations in light of this divine empowerment that God gives us in his spirit and move beyond the weaknesses that we have, the limitations that we have, by his grace as people who become loving and forgiving and wise, living a life in this world that brings glory to his name. This is the life to which you and I are called in Jesus, to partake in God's own being and nature, by faith for his glory. Amen.